welcome to Pale Blue Pod, the astronomy podcast for people who are overwhelmed by the universe but want to be its friend. Hell yeah, that's us. Hi, I'm Dr. Moya McTeer. I'm an astrophysicist and a folklorist and a friend to the universe. I think about it every night before I fall asleep. I love that. I feel like I think about it too, but not, but in a worse way. <laughs> I'm Corinne Caputo. I'm a writer, uh, funny person, anxious person, which is what I'm getting at. I'm falling mm. asleep worried about the universe. And I don't need to, thanks to this podcast. Yeah, the universe has your back, Corinne. <laughs> it does. It really does. Or it will. Mm-hmm. Or else. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it does. And it has. Thank you, universe. For a long time. As it does with all of its friends. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, we're in one of my favorite spots, <laughs> which is just a coffee shop. <laughs> Today we're in D.C., but I really just love getting a coffee every day. And I don't do it every day, even though I want to, mm-hmm. because it doesn't make sense. But there's something about acquiring a cup of coffee that is very soothing to me. Yeah, having someone else go through the the ritual mm-hmm. of making a cup of coffee exactly how you like it. What's your order, typically, Corinne? Um, it's a black cup of coffee. Or iced coffee, probably just black iced coffee. But I mm. often will think that I want something special and I'll get some kind of weird latte or flavored drink and I will always mm. wish I had just gotten a black cup of coffee. <laughs> oh, noted. Um, wow. All right. Yeah. R.I.P. to your stomach lining. I know. It's really not good. Me talking about how anxious I am. Like, I have no idea why. And it's like just trugging coffee like water. <laughs> I didn't drink coffee until I started working on my first book. And, uh, you know, I, I made it through college. I made it through grad school. Wow. But but writing really destroys my brain. And I yeah. need the alert juice mm-hmm. to get words on the screen. Yeah, I started in college when I was commuting from Staten Island to the Upper East Side. So it was like, if we're going to make this work, I'm going to need a cup of coffee. Mm-hmm. I yeah. imagine you had to get up pretty early. Yeah, like I had like- an 8 a.m. class which meant I was probably leaving at, I was on the train at 6 a.m. Damn, that's too early. Yep. It's too early. Too early. Yeah. But we did not have to get on a train. We did not have to wake up too early to be in this coffee shop. It's a nice, uh, easy day. I'm here with my little um, iced chai latte over Mm. here with oat milk, of course. (laughs) Of course. Of course. (laughs) And um, we are sitting here in this coffee shop in D.C. because that is where the headquarters of a a very special space organization are located. Mm -hmm. Um, And and today we're talking about that special space organization. It is, of course, NASA. NASA. We're talking about NASA today. Yay. Because... I'm sure we've all heard of NASA. We must have. I, I cannot count the number of times I've said NASA on, on this podcast. But I am not so sure that we all know what NASA does. Yes. <laughs> Corinne, what do you, like, if you had to explain NASA to to an alien, mm. like, if you had to explain NASA to, to someone who had never heard of it, what what would you say? Oh, that's such a good question. I'm fuzzy on NASA as of late because I know that we work with SpaceX or, like, other space agencies to do things together. Mm. But I would say that they are, like, the project managers for all of our, like, space travel and space exploration initiatives. Not all of them, but most of them or the Mm -hmm. ones that the population has heard about. (laughs) Yeah, not the super top secret ones. Yeah, not the top secret stuff and not the stuff that might be a little more, like... Like, I imagine there's academic work that NASA isn't always a part of. Right, 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 right. I mean, most, most yeah. academic work is not in, in involving NASA. Amazing. I had no, yeah. I actually, I thought that they would have done some. Or like, maybe they do some, I, they do some but I think I would have thought they did most. Mm. But I guess that makes sense. Yeah. Um, I, I noticed that you are also only talking about space things. Oh, but yes. NASA does things inside the atmosphere. Yeah, they do. Because the A, the first A is aeronautics. Which includes planes. I, of course, that's true. The space center I worked at had a whole program on airplanes and how airplanes work and and travel and things like that. But that Mm -hmm. part was always harder for me to understand. I don't know why. I think I think it's just naturally what my brain is more interested in is space than airplanes. Look, I agree with you. <laughs> I go to the Intrepid in New York, and I'm like, uh, okay, I guess planes Yeah, we are did fine. go there for an event, and I was like, okay. <laughs> sure. But yeah, NASA does uh, have 
dominion, I guess, mm-hmm. over both of, of those domains. It's NASA stands for the National Aeronautics and Space Administration. And so it uh, touches anything above the ground, really, mm-hmm. uh, can be under the purview of NASA. But I, I think maybe in order to help people understand what NASA does and like what it's up to now, we should talk about the history and, and the founding of yeah. NASA a little bit. Maybe some people know that NASA was not always called NASA, that before NASA, there was another agency Mm -hmm. that uh, was pretty related. Uh, Do you know what that one was called, Corinne? It was a a committee, right? Like, it wasn't part of the... I mean, I guess it was part of the government, but it wasn't as, like, standardized as it is now. Exactly. Yeah, it was was a committee and not uh, an agency or or an administration. Yeah. So uh, during World War I, that's where the history of NASA mm-hmm. starts. So be prepared for some uh, relationship with the military-industrial mm-hmm. complex, mm-hmm. unfortunately. But during World War One, the U.S. wanted to compete with Europe's technological advances, especially in aviation. Um, I don't know how much you know about the history of flight and aviation, but in uh, World War One, like in, in the 19-teens, Airplanes had only been around for like 10 years. They were invented in 1903. That's so crazy. That's so crazy. So, crazy. <laughs> so um, flying was a very new thing, and the U.S. wanted to be the world leaders in aviation innovation, of course. And so they put together an act. The federal government puts together the Naval Appropriation Act, um, and it establishes the National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics in 1915. That is an initialism, not an acronym. So people didn't call it NACA, a Apparently, they always referred to it as the NACA. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, So NACA, uh, or the National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics, was founded in 1915, and their responsibility was to manage and conduct aeronautics research, experiments, um, and flight tests and simulations. So they would do things like perfect wing shape Mm -hmm. on different types of planes. They developed a lot of de-icing technology and, like, substances that can get ice off of an airplane. Uh, They are the people who figured out how to break the sound barrier and Mm -hmm. reach supersonic speeds. So they were doing a lot of um, flight research, but also a lot of war stuff. Yeah, of course. Which, uh, yeah, unfortunately cemented the unsavory relationship between space research and the military. Um, A lot of space science and research is funded by, like, the Department of Defense. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of technology that is invented in astronomy then gets like funneled into military stuff so a lot of the super advanced optics a lot of the super advanced like spying capabilities you know anything that has to do with seeing something far away probably initially developed in some ways like for astronomy and then given to the military and a lot of funds are put into it and then they make it really good Yeah. It's unfortunate. But the NACA did set up four different research facilities around the United States. There was the Langley Memorial Aeronautical Laboratory in Virginia. So at the beginning of Hidden Figures, um, that's where Katherine Johnson is going. Mm -hmm. Uh, She's going to an NACA facility. I don't think... I don't know when Hidden Figures starts, but if it's before 1958, then she was not working at NASA, but was working at the NACA. Um, So there's that lab in Virginia. There's the Aircraft Engine Research Lab in Ohio and the Ames Aeronautical Lab and the Muroc Flight Test Unit. Both of those two are in California. And some of them probably sound familiar. Langley is still around and Ames is still around today. The other two might be, but I haven't really heard of them because Mm -hmm. I don't do aviation stuff. (laughs) It's just not as interesting to me. Fair enough. Yeah. Um, So in 1957, you know, several decades later, the Soviets launched Sputnik. This is a a tiny little space potato uh, that, like a a little metal can that the Soviets launched up into space. And it was the first thing that humans put into space. And then Americans got really scared. And they're like, we can't possibly let anyone else get to space before we do. And the space race began. Um, At the beginning of the space race, there was the NACA, and researchers there had already been starting to think about space things. Uh, There was a a researcher at the Ames Laboratory named Harvey Allen who was thinking about 
pretty counterintuitive designs for vehicles re-entering Earth's atmosphere. They thought that it would need to be pointy to be the most aerodynamic. And uh, this Allen guy was like, actually, if you have more of a rounded front, then it makes it uh, more efficient at, like escaping the the heat uh, mm. forces and surviving re-entry. So they were doing some space stuff even before the U.S. like really entered the space race. And so it seemed like the NACA and their research facilities already had the personnel and the infrastructure that would do really well in the space race. So the U.S. government adapted the NACA and its existing facilities into the National uh, Aeronautics and Space Administration. And all of that happened as part of the National Aeronautics and Space Act of 1958. Um, I read through this act. It's like this old, <laughs> this old government Form from 1958 that lays out the establishment of NASA, and it's it's really cool to go through. That's and so like cool. these are publicly available documents, you can just go read them. It tells you exactly what they wanted NASA to be and do, and like how they wanted it to be structured. It gets into some really nitty gritty details. Oh, that's um, so cool. So I'm gonna we're, we're gonna go through this document a little bit. The act itself established NASA to quote, provide for research into problems of flight within and outside the Earth's atmosphere um, and for other purposes, end quote. Just like a little vague. Mm -hmm. uh, I I like that they're keeping it open. This is at the very top of the act, and it says, like, what the act is is going to do. Uh, And it gave NASA the following objectives. First, expand human knowledge of phenomena in the atmosphere and in space pretty straightforward. I Mm -hmm. like it. Learn stuff about what's out there. Yeah. Their second objective was to improve the performance of aeronautical and space vehicles. So like make us better airplanes and eventually rockets. The third was to develop and operate vehicles capable of carrying things into space. They knew in 1958 that we didn't want to just send things like a, like a satellite to space. They knew even then, like, we want to send people. We want to send, yeah. um, like, materials. Like, we want to we wanna establish a base outside of our atmosphere. Sure. Uh, it also directed them to establish long-range studies of potential costs and benefits of space activities, quote, for peaceful and scientific purposes. So written into the language of this act is a lot of terminology that tells you this is a civilian operation. Mm -hmm. NASA is not military, Mm -hmm. um, and it it should do research for peaceful and scientific purposes. Yeah. That reminds me of a moment in Contact, which we talked about last week, when the government Mm -hmm. kind of arrives and she's like, why are they here? This is a civilian place. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And she's right. Although... The the VLA is not funded or supported by NASA. So get out of here for real. <laughs> but still, I mean, the VLA is also a civilian um, agency yeah. or a civilian organization. So the next directive was to preserve... The, you're not going to like this. <laughs> it was to preserve the role of the United States as the leader in aeronautical and space sectors. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's especially funny now because I, I mean, I... <sighs> Now that so many countries are pursuing space initiatives that, like, mm-hmm. I don't know if we're still number one or not, but we are working with other with other countries, especially f- for the ISS and things like that. Oh, yeah, yeah. There are definitely international collaborations. Um, we are probably number one. Um, I think worldwide, when people think of space stuff, they usually think of NASA. You, yeah. you can't go anywhere in the world without seeing NASA swag. I was just going to say there is NASA swag everywhere. Everywhere. Um, But the fact that this agency was founded with the express purpose of making sure the U.S. is always at the top. Like, that to me just seems a little shady. I agree. What are you going to do if other countries start getting ahead? Like, are you going to sabotage? Like, what? Mm, I just don't like it. Yeah. But the... (laughs) The next one isn't much better. The next directive was to let the military know if there's anything relevant to national defense, um, which makes sense going back to Contact, the movie. The the national security people come in and they're like, how dare you alert other uh, nations about this? This is a national security risk. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Um, And then there's a directive to cooperate with other nations towards all of these scientific ends. 
which is nice. Okay. Uh, I appreciate that cooperation and collaboration are, are baked into it. And then it stipulates that there's supposed to be close cooperation with other U.S. agencies to uh, to do this research and to, to share the information that mm-hmm. it finds. Those are all the directives of of NASA, according to this act. There are eight of them. Yeah, that feels mad. I, I don't know if it feels manageable. What do I know about a government agency? <laughs> I do know that their budget is not that big, especially compared to like right. military ops. So I'm like, good luck with all that. Oh, yeah. We, we I have a whole section about the budget for you, Corinne. <laughs> don't you worry. Um, but those, those were like the eight responsibilities yeah. of NASA laid out in that initial act from 1958. Um, the act was signed in the summer of 1958, and NASA officially, uh, all the a bunch of websites that I read this from said opened for business, <laughs> which is a weird way to put it, but NASA officially opened for business Love on that. October 1st, 1958. <laughs> oh my God, wow, we're just in time for an anniversary, just missed it. Exactly, exactly. That's not all that the act did. Like that document also um, established the National Aeronautics and Space Council. This is a special council of people who have to be consulted for any major space-related decision. And that council is made up of the president, the secretary of state, the secretary of defense, the administrator of NASA, which I'll get to in a second, and like a few other people. Mm -hmm. Um, That was back in 1958. Things have shifted a little bit since then. It is now called the National Space Council, and it has been since 1989. Um, and it's no longer like the president who has to be on it, because I think Kamala Harris is is the lead of the National Space Council. So you know, we have laws that dictate, like, or I don't know, policies, whatever, that dictate like who has to be on these councils, which I, I find interesting. Um, It is specified that NASA is a civilian agency led by an administrator who is from the the civilian population and appointed by the president. And the act from 1958 specified a salary of $22,500 a year, plus a deputy administrator whose salary was $21,500 a year. And I just love that they specified the salary in this government document. Yes, for transparency. (laughs) Okay, I need to know, though, what, okay, $22,000 in 1958 is what today? $230,000. $230,000. Okay. So get Wait, can you <laughs> That's a pretty good deal. <laughs> but can you look up the current salary for the NASA administrator? Oh, yeah. Okay. NASA admin. I feel like it's $203,000 annually. So wow. it's it's a it's like 30 grand less than the exact inflation and certainly has followed inflation more closely than the minimum wage. Well, but, I mean, yeah. I wonder if because the salary was put into this federal document that it had to and keep to, up with yeah, inflation. Yeah, I wonder. Interesting. So, yeah, it's like it specified their salary. And I think the best way to think about the bounds of NASA's responsibilities are if you have to be in or pass through the atmosphere to do whatever you want to do, you got to go through NASA. Love that. Um, so all of the space-based telescopes are supported by NASA. JWST, Hubble, the Chandra X-ray Observatory, Kepler, anything that was launched into space, any like mission and observatory in space, that's done by NASA. But most of the ground-based observatories are supported by the National Science Foundation. So that's kind of the split there. Oh, cool. So like the VLA, um, the Green Bank Telescope, um, I'm sure soon we'll talk about like Keck and Gemini. Those are through other, some are like public funding sources like the National Science Foundation, which is taxpayer um, supported, or um, Associated Universities, Inc., which is like a, a nonprofit organization. So yeah, that's that's kind of the divide of responsibilities. National Science Foundation always makes me think of like the end of a PBS show, because when I was a kid and would watch that after school, there was always like mm-hmm. a bumper at the end that was like, this program is brought to you by like something, something, something yeah. and the National Science Foundation. <laughs> Hell yeah. The NSF funds a a lot of stuff. The NSF funded my graduate research. I love that. Mm -hmm. Thanks, NSF. Thanks, NSF. I want to talk about the organizational structure of Mm -hmm. NASA. Like, if you made a tree to to show Mm. who has power in this organization, what would the shape of that tree be? Um, And I I looked into it, and there are actually some very helpful graphics that NASA puts out to to show the power structure. And they are included in this week's research notes for our patrons. 
The top person at NASA is the administrator appointed by the president. Currently, the NASA administrator is Bill Nelson, and he is the 14th appointed administrator. He does not have a science background. He's a lawyer. He went to Yale. Um, yuck. Fail. Um, I'm just, I'm contractually obligated to say that. Um, he's, a, he's a lawyer and he is a former senator uh, who served on several space slash science slash technology themed committees. Um, but he also flew as an astronaut. He was a like a mission specialist in the 1980s, did several orbits around Earth and uh, then was appointed <laughs> as cool. the NASA administrator. So I think they did a pretty good job picking him. He seems very qualified. There have been 14 appointed administrators and 10 acting administrators okay. since 1958. Corinne, how many of those 24 people do you think were Ugh. women? I think none. Is it's that right? None. It's none. Okay, because I thought I did research on this. I wrote a pilot a while ago. It was about mm. like women going to the moon for the first time. And I remember looking up like how big of a problem is this? And it yeah. was, and it went straight them. to the top. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Absolutely none of them. Although the the current, um, so there's there's the administrator, there's a deputy administrator, and there's an associate administrator. The current deputy administrator is a woman, I think. Okay. Growth. Um, growth. How many of those 24 people were white? Oh, I want to say all of them? 23. 23. 23 okay, wait. There's one. There's one. There's, like the there's one. Yeah, in 2009, President Obama appointed Charles Bolden to right, the administrator Charles role. Bolden. Yep. Yeah, and he is the first and still only black person to act as NASA's administrator. Well, so NASA's got some work to do. Some work to do. Um, but they do have. When I was looking at this organizational structure, they do have a whole like branch that is dedicated to equity and inclusion, although so many of these organizations do, let's be honest. Um, but but NASA does publish like their, their demographics. They, they seem to at least be aware of the problem, even if they are not fixing it as quickly as I'm sure many of us would like them to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Hello, Corinne here. While Moya gets another coffee, let me say thank you to all of our amazing patrons who support the show every month. Thank you, as always, to our Sunlike stars, Sharn Llewellyn, Lissa, and Peyton. And you can support us, hear your name on this pod, make it to our patron star chart, all by supporting us on Patreon for just about a dollar per episode. If you sign up for an annual membership, you get a 13% discount, 1% for every constellation in the Zodiac. Find the star chart, Patreon info, and more at our website, palebluepod.com, or by going right to patreon.com slash palebluepod. And if you can't support us financially, that's fine. You're still space, and we love you. You can support us by reviewing the show on whatever app you use or sharing the show with your friends. And while you're here, I want to quickly recommend another fantastic podcast in the Multitude family. Spirits is a history and comedy podcast focused on everything folklore, mythology, and the occult told through the lens of feminism, queerness, and modern adulthood. Every week, mythology buff Julia and her childhood best friend Amanda get together to learn about a different story from mythology and folklore over drinks. That's everything from the mythological origins of major franchises like Lord of the Rings and Wonder Woman to modern urban legends to a roundup of werewolf stories from around the world. There are even episodes that Moya and I guessed on. So start listening with any of the 300 plus episodes they've released over the last six years. Whether you're here for analysis of mental health and mythology or creepy modern ghost stories, there is so much to enjoy. Dive in at spiritspodcast.com or search for spirits wherever you download your podcasts. And finally, just in time for cozy season, you can indulge in the timeless pleasure of Ravensburger's extraordinary jigsaw puzzles. Ravensburger's premium quality puzzles are crafted with meticulous attention to detail, bringing you an unparalleled puzzle-solving experience. With a rich heritage dating back to 1883, Ravensburger puzzles have become an integral part of families' lives across generations. Share the joy of puzzling with family and friends, knowing that your cherished puzzles will stand the test of time. Regardless of your preferences or skill level, you'll find a jigsaw puzzle that suits you thanks to the wide variety of imagery, themes, and piece counts available. Start small and work your way up to over 40,000 pieces. And if you're up for the challenge, shop Ravensburger on Amazon today. Climate change is going to require collective action. But how can individual actions make a difference? 
On a new episode of Life Kit, we're walking you through what sort of climate-friendly choices can make an impact in your life and the lives of others. Listen to Life Kit, part of NPR's Climate Week, wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, back to the pod. Um, so that's that's at the top, but then underneath the administrators, there are kind of two big branches that NASA operations get split into. There's the agency management side and the project management side. Mm -hmm. So the agency management does all the budget stuff. They do long-term strategy and goals, like the financial stuff and the equity and inclusion stuff. All of the things that have to do with the operation of NASA are, are under that side, and they will report directly to the deputy administrator of NASA. And then the other branch is the project management side. They oversee research programs and other missions, and they report to the associate administrator. Mm -hmm. um, and underneath them, there are five different mission directorates. Uh, each has its own leader and different projects that they uh, fund uh, because each of these mission directorates gets its own like sub-funding from NASA. Sure. And those five directorates are the five different areas of research that NASA does. So the first is aeronautics research. Uh, the second is explorations systems development. So like developing the technology and, and the software and the hardware to um, do the explorations. They have a whole science mission directorate. Science. Just the term <laughs> science. <laughs> Just the term science. And their website is science.nasa.gov. <laughs> That's so funny because I feel like all of these other directorates are also science. <laughs> yes. Um, this is where you get into people who get super uptight about distinctions between like science, technology, and engineering. So the, another mission directorate is the space operations directorate. The people who maintain the rovers, the people who I think maintain things would mm -hmm. fall under that. Okay. Space operations. And then there's space technology. So like developing new rocket fuel and, and new ways to launch things. Um, those are the five different mission directorates. We are in D.C. because that is where the NASA headquarters are, but there are 10 field centers for research and development spread around the country. And then there are a bunch of other like not research centers, but places where NASA research is done that would not get counted on this list because they're too small. Like, for example, uh, Tom's Diner from from Seinfeld. Uh-huh. Yes. Uh, oh, yes. That's an actual diner that is yes. in New York City, very close to Columbia University's campus. Above Tom's yep. Diner is a NASA research center. I, I did. <laughs> like, I have been told this before. I love that. <laughs> it's a little NASA outpost above yes. the diner from that's Seinfeld. so funny. So, yeah, NASA is everywhere, which is good because base researchers are everywhere. That's so fun. Yeah. Any questions about, like, NASA and how it's structured? I mean, there are many people who work at NASA. I'm curious, like, what it's like reporting to so mm -hmm. many people when there are so many levels above you, too. Um, mm -hmm. Obviously, I'm not expecting you to know that, but I'm like, I am curious what their day to day, what everyone's day to day is looking like. Right. It is a big bureaucratic machine. Yes. It moves slowly, uh -huh. um, just like any other big system, and it is kind of set in its ways. But it's nice that it has some kind of regular turnover. Yeah. Um, there have been 24 people in charge of it since 1958. There have been lots of different like political administrations mm -hmm. since 1958, and each each like presidential administration has different focuses, right? That right. it um, like pushes on onto the different research agencies. So yeah, it's changed a lot, which is pretty cool. Yeah, I am curious how they spend their money or like how they can exist with <gasps> space is just so expensive to send a pound of stuff into space is like ten thousand dollars. Yeah, Corinne, thank you. For bringing that up. I would love to talk about <laughs> NASA money stuff, <laughs> please. I love it. Because, because that's an, a thing that comes up often when you, when I tell people I'm an astrophysicist, the conversations usually go in like a few different prescribed directions. And one of them is talking about like the purpose of space research and why do we bother putting all these resources into studying space when we don't know anything about our oceans or like we still have right. diseases that are killing humans. Um, and so... NASA is often used as kind of like a like a punching bag or like a an example of frivolous spending from the government. But right. that is just 
not at all true. So yeah. uh, the budget for NASA gets set every single year. Uh, they have to propose a budget to Congress in February. Congress uh, negotiates on it in their like allocation committees or whatever, and they decide by the October 1st fiscal year deadline if NASA is going to get its budget. Um, and they do that for all of the all of the different government agencies. They do that for the military. They do this for like health and education mm-hmm. and whatever. Um, and NASA gets a very small chunk of all of that money. Uh, just for some historical context, when NASA was founded in 1958, its initial budget was 90 million dollars per year. Um, and if you account for inflation, that's like 2.3 billion dollars of today's money. billion in 2023 to run a a national research facility for an entire year is not a lot of money. Yeah. And that was their startup cost. Now, in 2023, the budget is $25.4 billion per year. Yeah. Because, like you said before, space is really expensive. Um, So this has fluctuated a lot over the years. The peak of NASA's spending was in 1966, which makes sense. We were in the space race. We were about to send people to the moon. The Apollo programs were, like, very alive and uh, had captured the the hearts of the American public. So the government put a lot of resources into NASA. At that 1966 peak, their budget in today's dollars was about $53 billion. Wow. So, like, yeah. twice what they have now. Exactly. And, exactly. yeah, I have a, a go-to fact I have in my head is that the New York City public school system has a bigger budget than NASA. Like, just the New York City public oh. school system. And by a lot. It's $37.5 billion in New York City. And... NASA's 25 and like both are underfunded (laughs) like both are not receiving the resources they need oh my I love that fact it's crazy (laughs) that's like a really good comparison because people people really do think that the NASA budget is is higher than it is like oh that should be enough to do whatever whatever but I mean do you think that I don't know there's just never enough going around Right. Exactly. Yeah. So I think instead of talking about absolute budgets, it might be more helpful to think about the NASA budget as a fraction of the total federal budget. Mm-hmm. So in in that 1966 peak, NASA got 4.4 percent of the total U.S. budget. Not a lot. <laughs> that's the that's the most that NASA has ever gotten since 1975. It's varied between 0.5 percent and 1 percent. So for the last 48 years, NASA has never gotten more than 1 percent of the total federal budget. Wow. There was a a poll of about a thousand people in 2018 by Business Insider, and they were trying to figure out what people thought about NASA funding. And what they found was pretty surprising. Um, the average respondent out of something like a thousand and sixty people uh, believed that the NASA budget was six point four percent of the federal budget. Mm-hmm. which is already an overestimate. It's more right. than than the max that it has ever been. So that's yeah. what the average person thinks we spend on NASA. But then 85% of the respondents said that NASA should get even more than that, that NASA should get 7.5% of the total budget. Oh, so wow. people think NASA gets way more than it does, but they want it to get even more because people yeah. care about space research, yeah. which the federal government seems to like not... They seem believe. to deny, yeah. Yeah, and and they have, like, since the 1970s. We sent an actual living person to the moon in 1969. Two of them. Two living human beings walking on the moon in 1969. And the next year, NASA gets a drastic cut in funding? Yeah, yeah. Like, wh- what? It was like, well, we did what we needed to do. We got the people on the mm-hmm. moon. That's good enough. I mean, public sentiment for space research is much better now than it was in, yeah. like, the 70s and 80s. yeah. When you look at the other things that the federal government spends money on, the NASA's budget is is so tiny. It's yes. right now half a percent. Veterans benefits is is two percent of of the federal budget, and I'm not saying they should get less. No, but, no. Um, but I would bet people think that's reversed. I'll bet people exactly. would think that veterans are getting half a percent, and NASA's getting like six, seven. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. On the pie chart that I saw, veterans' benefits was the next smallest chunk, and it's it's two percent. It's four times more than what NASA gets. Um, it's 
it's a tiny drop compared to what the military gets, and, and it's much smaller than everything else that the government spends money on. So really, let's let's stop blaming NASA for government spending inefficiencies. Yeah. 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 And, and it's not like that money is just being burned. Like, it's being put to good use. Um, NASA employs about 17,000 people around the country right now, and it supports the employment of tens of thousands more through contracts and grants that are made out to people in every single state of the country. In 2022, NASA spent 73.5% of its total budget, which was something like $23 billion. Uh, it spent 73.5% of that budget on contracts with nearly 5,000 different businesses, nonprofit orgs, and educational institutions. So um, NASA does doesn't hoard all its money. It mm -hmm. puts it out into the world. Mm -hmm. um, looking at the breakdown of where NASA spends its money, about 15% of that goes to facilities and overhead costs. So like keeping the lights on at all these different research labs and, and whatnot. Uh, about 45% of it goes to human spaceflight research and uh, management uh, because one rocket launch can cost hundreds of millions of dollars. Yep. <laughs> Just wild. Yep. Um, and now it's getting cheaper um, because we are because we I'm not I'm not affiliated with NASA because NASA is now starting to work with private sector mm -hmm. space companies um, like um, Blue Origin and, and yeah. SpaceX. Now things are getting cheaper, especially since we can reuse uh, rockets. Uh, but 31% goes to fund specifically science research, 5% goes to technology, and 3.5% to aeronautics research, and then 0.5% uh, to education, because the act that established NASA also stipulated that the agency, quote, provide for the widest practicable and appropriate dissemination of information concerning NASA activities and the results thereof. So they had to share what they found with the world. Um, so that's like what they spend internally. But like I said, that money gets cycled out into the economy through contracts and, and they motivate a lot of technological innovation and growth. They inspire a lot of people to get involved with science. And, and so a, a lot of reports get written about NASA's funding and its like efficacy and, and what it provides for the rest of us. It's always having to uh, like justify its existence. But there are lots of reports out there that show NASA does economic good <laughs> for the country. Yeah. Um, and in one of those reports, it said that in 2019 alone, NASA generated more than $64 billion in economic output, which was $40 billion more than their budget that year. So like they wow. produced <laughs> yeah. $40 billion more than they spent that year. That's great. Or good. Yeah. <laughs> if That's a movie great. did that, that would be a right? successful movie. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, and so... Through all of that spending, through this organizational structure, NASA has been able to fund and support thousands of research missions. Those research missions look out into the depths of, of the universe. They look into the core of our planet, actually. Some of them look deep into the ocean. Some of them touch on health um, some of them touch on philosophy and, and psychology. You know, NASA has funded studies to see what the psychological effects of long-term, uh, like, relative solitude on space missions will be. Yeah. Like, they really are considering all of the different facets of an existence out mm -hmm. in space. Uh, yeah. And so I, I have here, um, like, a few different kind of out there research missions that oh, I, I, I think people might not associate with NASA because, you know, all of the space telescopes, all of the the big missions to explore space, like we've heard of those. Mm -hmm. I want to I want to talk about some some lesser known research projects. And I did I did briefly think about putting in a fake one and asking you to identify the fake oh, one. so funny. <laughs> <laughs> but I just I couldn't. Like, nah. these, these are so out there that like I couldn't think of one yeah, that would be a good fake for you. Totally. Oh, I'm excited. Yeah. So these are just four real NASA missions. The first was from 1995. It was a team led by David Nover, who was doing a follow-up on a study from um, the 1940s, maybe? He was testing the neurological effects of different substances by 
uh, injecting spiders with those substances and then observing the spider's ability to build webs under the influence. Oh, my God. <laughs> uh, so they, they specifically gave the spiders caffeine, marijuana, mm-hmm. benzedrine, which is uh, an amphetamine, and chloral hydrate, which is a sleeping aid. It's a sedative. And they saw how the spiders built webs under all of these substances. Oh, my God. <laughs> um, and, and they put pictures of the different webs that they, that they built in the paper, which, which is fun to look at. But they noticed, they observed, that caffeine had the biggest neurological effect. And it led to the spiders finishing their webs more quickly, but the webs themselves were more disorganized <laughs> and chaotic. That tracks... <laughs> I have a cup of coffee and I'm like, I'm going to get this work done so fast. And then like you kind of emerge and you're like, what was that? Yeah. That wasn't what Um, I meant. (laughs) And so this study actually was something that led to people realizing how much of an effect caffeine has on Mm -hmm. our brains. Because for a long time, people were like, it'll like wake you up, but it's not going to have any strong consequence or anything. Yeah, so after this study, they started looking into like, the actual consequences second. of caffeine. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so caffeine had the biggest effect, uh, but all of them af- affected the spider's webs. Yeah. Benjadrine led to bigger, less structured webs. Okay. Um, I, I'm i not totally, like, it's it's an amphetamine, right? So, like, maybe it just got them jazzed. So they were going really far, they but just, they weren't really paying attention to what they sure. were doing. Maybe, yeah. I guess. Um, Weed led to smaller webs um, with more breaks during construction. That's so funny. (laughs) That, to me, is like when you've smoked weed and you're like, how much time has passed since? Yes. That is like, this web is so big. And then you're like, wait a second. No, it's not. Four minutes have passed. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that's exactly what was going on. Whatever internal clock is telling the spider, like, what to do next is just <laughs> off. But at least the doped up spiders, <laughs> you know, the ones that were high, the ones that were that were tweaking, they finished their webs. But the spider that was given the sedative did not even finish their webs. Oh, so my God. Oh. <laughs> Could they finish it? Incomplete. They just fell asleep before That's they could so finish That's so funny. It. That's relatable to me. Relatable. Exactly. These yeah. spiders are hella relatable. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was a NASA fund, an actual NASA-funded research project that was done in 1995. I love that. <laughs> then in 2016, of course, NASA did other stuff in those intervening 20 years. But um, in 2016, NASA contributed to... Earth conservation movements um, and to stopping the climate crisis by surveying a portion of the world's coral reefs to assess the condition of these threatened ecosystems and understand their relation to the environment um, and and changes in that environment that were brought on by human efforts um, and natural cycles. Mm-hmm. And uh, the study was led by Eric Hochberg. He was the the PI or the principal investigator on this mission. He and his team developed a special imaging spectrometer that was designed to fly on small aircraft. Um, So it could be an airplane or even a drone. It didn't have to be, Mm -hmm. like, crude. So it could be planes or drones. But this special spectrometer is meant to monitor reef systems in Florida, Hawaii, the Mariana Islands, and Australia. So monitoring coral reefs um, in in lots of places in the world. That's so cool. I did not know that they went underwater. No, they don't. Well, well, they, they like. I mean, look, like, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> metaphorically, like, <laughs> are keeping an eye on what's down there. Mm-hmm. They they are interested in the whole Earth ecosystem. One thing that I really appreciate about NASA is that they don't fall into the trap of thinking of Earth as a separate thing from space. Like they really oh, do like consider that. Earth the system, like as a planet. Yeah, we're just a planet and we can study this planet really well because we're here. So let's do that and like take our our knowledge and apply it to elsewhere. Totally. Like we're so lucky to be on one. Let's take a look at it. (laughs) Truly. Exactly. Um, in 2020, NASA funded the development of a fuelless propulsion drive to make launches more cost-effective. Um, this was led by James Woodward, and he developed, he and his team, developed a drive that was based on, and I quote, peer-reviewed, technically credible physics. <laughs> 
Like, guys, I promise this is technically credible physics. I swear this is. No, you guys. (laughs) Guys, we're peer reviewed. It's technically credible. (laughs) Um, And you're about to hear why it needed to be supported or or vouched Mm -hmm. for in that way. Because it's using crystals. Oh. Um, They use special crystals, piezoelectric crystals, um, that generate electric fields when they are under stress. So if you like compress them um, or anything, they will generate an electric field. And I think the opposite is also true. If you pass an electric current through them, then like their their properties, their physical properties change. Because the way that this drive works is by passing an electrical current through the crystals and then they, they expand and contract, mm-hmm. which uh, actually creates a small amount of thrust because of any action having an equal and opposite reaction. If you like pull away, then you're creating a, a force or momentum in the opposite direction. Mm-hmm. Um, but <laughs> these these machines really can only generate a tiny amount of thrust. A fully powered one generates uh, one-tenth the force of an apple just sitting on your desk and, like, pushing on the desk because of gravity. <laughs> so, so, so they need to, <laughs> to yeah. get a lot of them or, like, really amp up their... Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. But it's technically credible. Yeah. (laughs) It is technically a peer reviewed, credible science of a fuelless propulsion system. So good for them. (laughs) Good for them. And um, in 2023, I wanted to find something very recent. Just a few weeks ago, uh, NASA made U.S. history with the OSIRIS-REx mission. Mm -hmm. Um, OSIRIS-REx is a, well, it's a reference to Egyptian mythology, but it's also an acronym. It stands for Origins, Spectral Interpretation, Resource Identification, and Security Regolith Explorer. That is its full name. OSIRIS-REx for short. Mm -hmm. Um, And just a few weeks ago, OSIRIS-REx returned on September 24th with actual samples from an actual asteroid named Bennu. Uh, This was NASA's first successful attempt to retrieve asteroid samples. It wasn't the first in the world. I think that honor goes to Japan with their uh, Hayabusa 2 mission uh, from a couple years ago. But this is the first time NASA is doing this. OSIRIS-REx launched in 2016. It reached Bennu in December of 2018, but it had to like orbit Bennu a couple times and get its landing trajectory just right. And then it took the sample in 2020 and uh, headed back to us in 2021, but it had to orbit the sun a couple of times to get on the the right trajectory to Mm -hmm. intercept Earth. So it finally landed on September uh, 24th of this year, just a few weeks ago. And uh, now scientists can study the roughly like cup full of space dust and dirt (laughs) <laughs> just That's to, so fun. Yeah, to learn more about the origins of our solar system, which is which is which is exciting. I love that, and I'm dying yeah. to know what they learn. I know, I know. Hopefully, we'll we'll know soon. Although I'm sure there's probably not going to be a study about this for for some time. Yeah. Ah, cool. Um, so I thought that it might be fun for us to think about a NASA mission we would want to PI, Corinne. You and I as co-principal <gasps> investigators. Interesting. Well, yeah. What research would we want NASA to fund for us? Well, I'm thinking about you saying that they were studying people like in solitary, like isolation and and how Mm. that might affect a person, especially if we're going to send someone out to Mars and it takes like nine months to get there or whatever. But Mm. I'm like, what if what effect does it have on people when there's no new like entertainment? Ooh, like what what is that like? How essential is entertainment to a civilization? Mm. I love this, Corinne, because really we're asking NASA to fund a research project that will end the entertainment strikes. Exactly. (laughs) And that is why I'm bringing this up. Because if anyone has a budget with some flexible room. (laughs) It's NASA. We can put an end to this. We can create our own production company that's not struck. Yes. And fund this research. (laughs) Fund the research. I I think that's, that's beautiful. Um... As NASA is trying to expand our horizons beyond our atmosphere, uh, it's important to also send our culture with yeah. that expanding horizon, right? Mm-hmm. And, and art is such an important part of our culture. We've been making new art for tens of thousands of years as a species. What would happen if we stopped? Yeah. What would happen if greed just 
prevented us from creating what is really humanity's birthright mm-hmm. as, as, a, as a species capable of complex and abstract thought. Absolutely. I think we have a I good like case. That. I think we could put a proposal together. <laughs> I'll, uh, <laughs> I'll ring up Bill Nelson yeah. <laughs> and be like, sup, Bill. Corinne, is there anything about NASA and its structure that has surprised you today? Um, you know, I think that I'm not surprised because I have this primer background working at the Space Center where we focus mm. so much on NASA specifically and their work. But I hope they get more money. I hope everybody gets more money and I hope we mm-hmm. keep learning. Well, I hope not everybody gets Maybe more money. Maybe some people but don't But I do hope that the money is allocated uh-huh. more reasonably. <laughs> yeah, yes. yeah, that would be cool. <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay, awesome. Well, huh, no matter what your go-to coffee shop order is, please remember that NASA does some pretty cool work yeah. and you are space. Like, you, you, you are it. You You're not just are. a part of it. You are space. Mm-hmm. Pale Blue Pod was created by Moya McTeer and Corinne Caputo with help from the Multitude Productions team. Our theme music is by Evan Johnston and our cover art is by Shay McMullen. Our audio editing is handled by the incomparable Misha Stanton. Stay in touch with us and the universe by following at PaleBluePod on Twitter and Instagram. Or check out our website, palebluepod.com. We're a member of Multitude, an independent podcast collective and production studio. If you like Pale Blue Pod, you will love the other shows that live on our website at multitude.productions. If you want to support Pale Blue Pod financially, join our community over at patreon.com slash palebluepod. For just about $1 per episode, you get a shout out on one of our shows and access to director's commentary for each episode. The very best way, though, to help Pale Blue Pod grow is to share it with your friends. So send this episode, this link, to one person who you think will like it, and we will appreciate you for forever. Thanks for listening to Pale Blue Pod. You'll hear us again next week. Bye. Bye.